0: One more time. Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to see you. If you're tuning in a little bit later to our live stream, my name is Rob, and I serve here as the lead pastor of Calvary Bible, and you're here on a very special day with all of us in this auditorium. We're starting a new year with a new series for the next four weeks talking about Luke chapter 15 and specifically centering in on the story of the prodigal son. And I don't know about you, but the word prodigal is used in a lot of different uh, uh, ways and fashions. This story transcends just Christianity. A lot of people know the story of the prodigal son. You'll hear people say it all the time. Well, they came back. Oh, the prodigal has returned. And so it, it's kind of got, gotten out of, of the box of just Christianity. Everyone knows ...the story of the prodigal son. But maybe you don't know the story. Maybe you don't understand the whole thing. Or maybe you heard it just in, in, in a story from someone else. So we want to look at what the word of God actually says... ...about the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. But one of the things that we uh, model here at church... ...and one of the things that we are very um, serious about... ...but not serious in a rule kind of sense... ...but serious in about a, a, a passionate and a um, principle sense is that when we look at Scripture, we have to look at Scripture in context. We don't cherry-pick verses. We don't take verses that we need for it to mesh with what we want to believe. We look at what the Word of God says in context and when we look at the word of God in context we also need to look at the word of God in the age that it was written who the audience was to see if there's any application for us to make sure that we divide a specific people that God is speaking to and if he's talking general to everybody but in all scripture all 66 books of scripture we can find application for us and so even though we do want to divide Israel from the church and we do want to make sure that if God is specifically judging one person that we take the application without overwhelming us with grief and if on the same regard if there's something that we're struggling in our life and we want to make sense of all of it we go to the word of God for answers not go to the word of God to agree with us because what we're gonna find out in the Word of God a lot of the times is that what we believe isn't what's right, and the Word of God is trying to cut us like the two-edged sword, that that deep knife of the Word of God that's able to divide between the joints and the marrow and the sword and, 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 the, and the soul and the spirit to let us know exactly what God is saying to us. And so when we look at Luke chapter 15, I want us just to think about the context of all this. So today, we're not even gonna get into the story of the prodigal son. We're going to talk about the 10 verses that precede the prodigal son story in verses 1 to 10 to show you the context about what Jesus is talking about. Because the story of the prodigal son takes place in, 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 a, in a set of stories that Jesus tells something called parables. And you may have heard the phrase, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? And that's great, and that's easy for us to understand. But I want you to take it beyond that theological poem that you know, and I want you to think about what a a parable actually is. A parable is spoken by our Savior and Lord to a group of people who actually lived on the earth to tell them what's going on in their life in order for those who have been called by him to believe and those who haven't been called to be blinded even further further. This is one of those times that Jesus separates believers from non-believers based on something rather interesting. It's not based on our theological stance. Jesus Christ does not split up the group based on intellect. What Jesus Christ literally does, he splits up the group of believers with non-believers based on the attitude in which they receive the word of God. Two groups, Pharisees and regular people. And so you'll see specifically Jesus Christ is talking to Pharisees in Luke chapter 15. And so there's a couple of things that we need to talk about. First of all, what's a Pharisee? Well, a Pharisee, and this is another word that has transcended Christian talk, right? When someone says you're a Pharisaical, what do they mean by that? Somebody call it out. When someone says you're Pharisaical, what does that mean? You're what? It's the mass. I'm sorry. You're judging, right? Or or you're or what? You're also you're either um, or legalistic, right? Somebody will use that phrase a lot. The word Pharisee usually means that you're looking down on other people, right? So how did the Pharisees get this rap? Because the Pharisee is not just an adjective, a Pharisee is an actual title of somebody. So what is a Pharisee? So Pharisees were people who, at, at their very core, they, what they were supposed to be, were people who understood the word of God. And people who would memorize the word of God in order to help other people grow. They were given that title in order to encourage other people in the ways of the Lord. But what happened was, what had happened was in everybody's life, we take a little bit of a title, right? And we take a little bit of our intellect and we mix it up with with biblical truth and what do we do? We come down on everybody else because I got the title, I got the position. I therefore am better than you because I know in my head more scripture. And so all of a sudden their job became to judge other people on how they're living their Christian life. What we find out about Pharisees is that not only would they judge other people, they were pretty good rule breakers themselves. I think I've told the story about this. To me, it's the most shadiest practice that I've ever seen. But so during the Sabbath day, so you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? We know that. the uh, Jewish people were not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And we're going to talk a little bit later in the year about the Sabbath and what that actually means. It's not a ceasing of work. It's a ceasing of work in order to focus on God as a group, okay? So when they are uh, uh, celebrating Sabbath, you're not allowed to walk past the 100 paces, right? Because that would be work. You obviously have to go to the fridge. You don't have to go to the grocery store. That's kind of the idea, right? And so what would happen was, here's what the Pharisees would do. They had to go somewhere. They had to go to other cities to help other Pharisees talk bad about other people. It's what they did, right? They made an entire career about, you know, looking down on everybody else. And so what they would do was, they would walk about 99 paces, and in their bag, they had a piece of dirt from home they drop the piece of dirt and they go, one, because they never left home because they brought dirt with them, right? That's mad shady, isn't it? But they did this all the time. They, are, they were the most sketch people you would ever meet. But they wore these robes. They wore these, these garments that made them look better than everybody else. And so not only would you know a Pharisee because he handed you a business card, you would know he was a Pharisee because he was dressed a certain way. He, he, They did their best to outwardly look different, but on the inside, they were dead as ever. And so these are the people that Jesus is going to speak to in Luke chapter 15. Okay, enough suspense. Let's look into the word of God, all right? We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. All this stuff precedes what Jesus will say about the prodigal son, okay? Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. When we look at ...the parable. We see that there are... ...the structure of the way he, he speaks... ...has the same type of theme to it... ...and the same type of tone. He has the same rhythm to what he says. And in, in the first ten verses... ...he gives them two stories... ...both that seem completely different at the surface... ...but then when you read the stories back to back... ...they make sense, they go together... ...and at the end of both stories... ...Jesus says something, he goes... ...the same way, this is what it's like. And in this instance... Both parables, before the parable of the prodigal son, both talk about specifically how God and the angels rejoice over one person who comes to Jesus Christ. But the story doesn't start there. The chapter doesn't start there. The first two verses of Luke chapter 15 give us our first point and the title of today's message is that's the joy when we see sinners come to Jesus. The joy of seeing sinners saved. Now that's an incredible thing. It's a beautiful thing when someone comes to Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but if you know Jesus, you know the experience of what happens when someone comes to Jesus Christ. You have Felt it yourself when you recognized that there was nothing that you could do to earn more favor with God. There was nothing that you could do to buy your way into heaven. When it came to the sin that you did yesterday, the stuff that you do today and the stuff that you do tomorrow, you know that you were up the creek without a paddle because you have done things. You know the word of God. You know it says if you offend one point of it, the law, you offend all of it. You know when you stole that cookie out of the cookie jar when you were five years old, that wasn't because You sinned. It's because you're a sinner. It's your character. You knew all these things because the word of God and the spirit of God enlightened you to this truth. And you were convicted by the spirit of God. And you called on him for salvation. I get choked up thinking about everything that I did up to the moment that I got saved. I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, I was, I, if anything, I was just like, you know how Paul says he was born, and on the eighth day he was circumcised, he was raised, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews? Man, I was, I was born, I was, I was taken to church two days, uh, two weeks after I was born, I was there, I, I, you know, I followed my parents, whatever they said, they spoke Spanish at my church, I didn't speak Spanish, but they wanted the best of me, so they told me to go forward, they told me to raise my hand, they wanted me to get baptized, they thought somebody would reach out and tell me about Jesus, and it wasn't until I was 17 that I was at a Christian conference that somebody preached the gospel in English. And God used everything. I don't, I, don't, I don't make fun of, I'm not upset about the way I grew up. My parents loved the Lord. They did whatever they can. But God used everything for those 17 years to bring me to himself one night in South Carolina. And I get choked up thinking about what Jesus did for me. How he he saved me, how he takes away my debt, how he takes away my doubt and my fears, and he brings me back to himself. And he says that he's my savior and my God and my father and that he'll never leave me or forsake me. But he's given me a task. He he not only makes sure that I live right, but that, that I teach other people about who Jesus Christ is so that they can experience the same comfort and peace in knowing who Jesus is. And so when we talk about the joy that comes from seeing sinners saved, my question to you is this. Do you rejoice not only in your salvation, does that that rejoicing transfer to other people when they come to Jesus? And I'm not just talking about the moment when you see somebody baptized or the moment where you see somebody raise their hand. I'm talking about four or five months, years down the road, are you still concerned and in love with the fact that Jesus Christ saves people? This is the question that he brings up in verses one and two. Is there joy in seeing sinners come to Jesus Christ? So here's what he says All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. I was thinking about that. What a, what a grouping of people in the way that they're described, right? All the tax collectors and sinners. It's hilarious, right? So back then, so tax collectors, a little bit of background again. So tax collectors, usually what would happen to keep them local, the Roman government would hire uh, Jewish people within Jewish settlements and, you know, wherever you lived, if you were in Macedonia, uh, they would ha- hire maybe a Philippian to do the same thing. But what happened was they would hire people from within the community to collect taxes. The taxes weren't bad. The Bible, even Jesus says to render to Caesar what's his, right? The, the, taxes aren't what's evil. Okay. Here's what the problem was: that the tax collectors they would add their own surcharges to the taxes in order to make money. And this was actually okay with the Roman government. The Roman government paid them less than a waitress would get paid as their base salary. The rest was tips from people who were paying taxes. And so what would happen was some of these guys were getting rich. Do you remember Zacchaeus? He was getting he was getting loaded off of this. Matthew himself, Levi. He was a tax collector. These were people that were hated by their own community, not because they sided with the Roman government, because they were fleecing them out of their money. These people were not good people. So when the Bible says tax collectors and all sinners, what the Bible is actually doing is what Jesus, it, it, uh, what, what the, the writer, what Luke is doing is showing that there is a specific group of people, the tax collectors, who were really hated, and then everybody else who were also sinners. Right? The first thing I want you to recognize in this about the joy in seeing sinners come to Jesus is to recognize that you are one. You may not be a tax collector, but you're definitely a sinner. Because every single one of us, we have thought things, we've said things, and we've done things that has displeased God. There is no one, whether he lives in the Vatican, whether he lives in the White House, whether he lives whether he lives in the Promised Land, it does not matter. Every single one of us, no matter of our title or our position, tax collector, everybody else, we are all sinners. The Bible makes it clear. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible makes it clear throughout the very beginning when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, our parents showed us what our future was going to be like on our own. We were sinners. So sinners, tax collectors and sinners, that's who's there. They were approaching to listen to who? Jesus. Now, here's the story. For most of the time, now there would be some remnant that were actually going to listen for some truth, but usually the reason why the Pharisees would come to listen to Jesus during his life was to catch him in something. Was to maybe, maybe he would say something off. Maybe he would slip, uh, have a slip of the tongue. Something that they could nail to him to arrest him and possibly kill him. And the more they met with him, the more they heard him, the more they got stumped, and the more ticked off they got. To the moment of 33 and a half years, they would arrest him, they would torture, they would beat him, and he would die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. You see, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him; It just wasn't his time until those, those days were completed. So every time they spoke, they went to catch him, and they wound up getting stumped. And the Pharisees and the scribes. So here's another group of people. So the Pharisees, we spoke about who they are. Here were who scribes were. Scribes were a specific group of people who were tasked with their job being for their life. And usually it was handed down from generation to generation was to continue writing the word of God for people to have it. Because remember, they didn't have typewriters. They didn't have hard drives. So they would write it down. And every generation would have the word of God because of faithful scribes in the years before. I want you to think about this. God has perfectly preserved his word for, through millennia. Through scribes. Okay, so these scribes had a very important job. But one of the things that you find out culturally about scribes, they were just as rotten as the Pharisees. They were part of those tax collectors and sinners like all of us. The scribes took their responsibility not to a spiritual level. Like before, like honestly, the way it used to be was this. Like you would write the word of God and you would get to um, a passage of scripture that would mention the name of God. And they would have to stop. They would have to pray. They would have to repent. And they would have to wash their hands before they wrote that name. It was a spiritual practice to show them how special what their job actually was. What it wound up being was just them looking at other people who didn't wash their hands after writing the name of God. So they become just as Pharisaical as the Pharisees. And these are the people that are listening to Jesus. They, they came to listen to him. And this is what they said about him. This is, this is the thing. This man... Welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now they meant it as a dig, they meant it as an insult. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, for those of us, we, we hear that and we're like, man, I, I want to welcome sinners and I would love to have the opportunity to, to eat with people who don't know Jesus. But, you know, the thing is, we say that when we're in this room at 1045 to about 1215. But I'm telling you, if you look deep down in your heart, a lot of us don't give a rip about people who don't know about Jesus on a daily basis. We are so self-consumed in whatever we're going through. We're so self-conscious and we're so selfish when it comes to the joy that's being ripped out of us because we're so worried about ourselves. Sometimes when we see people, we do things like, this guy welcomes sinners and he eats with them. I mean, be honest and don't raise your hand, okay? But be honest with me. Sometimes you walk into here a little bit late and somebody's sitting in your seat and you look at them like, huh? Not realizing that person may need to find Jesus. Praise God, a visitor's here. They can come to Jesus. No, they're in my seat. I couldn't talk to my friend today in church because he was busy talking to sinners. Rob, you can't go out to lunch because you're talking or eating with a sinner? Most of us are Pharisees on a daily basis, and we need to start recognizing that. The joy that we should have seeing people come to Jesus sometimes is just preserved for 10.45 to 12.15 on a Sunday. And usually it's watching someone else do it. What's robbed your joy in seeing people come to Jesus? What would it take for you to change your stance and look at people and go, huh, sinner? And instead look at them like, sinner like me you see we have found it very easy in our suburban Christianity to compartmentalize the fact that we are still only saved by the grace of God it's not like something changed That all of a sudden now, once we come to Jesus, we keep our salvation based on work. We are still as wicked and rotten as we were before, except now we have the penalty of our sin taken care of. There is no difference between us. So the phrasing actually could be this. The joy of seeing sinners like me come to Jesus. We've lost something. And we need to find it in 2021. We've lost the joy. We've been robbed of it. By our own selfish, sometimes religious, sometimes just purely moral for moral sake, morality's sake, instead of recognizing that Jesus is saving people. So that's the theme. And that's what I want to bring with you before we get into the prodigal son is this. The fact of the matter is the the stories that Jesus tells us in the word of God won't change us unless our attitude has been corrected. You know this, most of the things, the decisions that we make are going to ride on whether or not we're in the right state of mind when we make them, right? That's why they, never say, make, make, that's why they, never, they say never make a big decision when you're emotional, right? Our decisions, the way we live our life needs to be based on the principles of God's word more than what we're feeling. Right. And so when we look at that, and we look at how we're living our life. If our emotional state right now pivots towards secularism or pivots towards self-pity or pivots towards being angry and sad and depressed and not pivoting towards the word of God and everything that he has given us, all our promises in Christ Jesus, we are not going to be joyful when we see other people come to Jesus. We're just going to wait to when 1215 12, 12, hits so we can get the heck out of here. I'm giving you real talk today, guys, because I love you. But I don't want to enter another year with us just playing around in Christianity. We need to have joy about other people coming to Jesus. And I think it starts with us remembering what Jesus did for us. So the two stories that he tells, before the story of the prodigal son, I want you you to ask the Spirit to help you see this from your point of view and the point of view of others coming to Jesus in the same boat. The first story has to do with the lost sheep. Jesus tells them the parable, remember, which is a story that's on earth but has a lot to do with the kingdom of God, and it's for us to, to recognize what God is doing in our life and for us to have application. It says this, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? So Jesus just, he asks them a question. Who of us here, if we had a hundred bucks, and lost one dollar, and saw the dollar way down the hill, near a creek, may not even make it to it, who one of us here would go and run after and get that one dollar? Not all the people, right? So in the economy of the Jewish people, sheep had worth. And somebody having sheep isn't a hundred sheep isn't a bad flock of sheep. And usually there's more than one shepherd watching the fee, especially for 100 people. But he's asking this question, who here, if you had one of those sheep run down, would you run after them or would you go, there's 99 still here? So the answer should be simple. Well, obviously, this is what we think. And this is probably what some of us were taught in Sunday school is this. Obviously, we're going to run after that sheep. I don't think it's that simple. I think the question has to be answered based on where you are in your relationship to that sheep. Because if you're just a hireling and you don't care if you're one of the the, the assistant shepherds, you may not run after that sheep. If If you're just concerned about, well, I still have 99, you may not run after that sheep. But if you care about that sheep, you'd run. And so the comparison that Jesus is making isn't this, hey, if you were a shepherd, would you do this? He's saying, if you are a shepherd who cares after his sheep, who wouldn't go and get them? So the question is, why is it being asked as a question? Why doesn't he say it just this way? Obviously, a shepherd runs after his sheep because he wants us to think about it. Would we go after that sheep? And that has a lot to do based on our attitude. Here's the awesome part. Praise God, we're not the shepherd, amen? Jesus is. So our selfish self-pity doesn't matter to him. He's going after that sheep because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God demonstrated his love toward us. And while we were still sinners running down to that creek in danger, Jesus Christ died for us. He's the shepherd. And he says, Who, why, why, why? I would I never He's talking about himself and saying, I would always go after the sheep. But remember in context, who is he speaking to? The Pharisees and the scribes. Who the only words they could muster up in the presence of Jesus was this. He eats with sinners. He welcomes them. Those Pharisees, bet your bottom dollar, would never go after that sheep. They would be talking bad about sheep, the sheep the whole way down. Look at that idiot. Watch him go. Ah, well, there's 99 more. And so he makes a sharp comparison that they had no joy in someone being saved. And this is what Jesus brings up. He brings up the fact that one of the characteristics of who we were before Jesus Christ was the fact that we needed to be saved. We were in danger. Our sin has caused us to be separated from God for all of eternity. So when he gives that analogy of the sheep running away, the sheep is running into danger just like you and I were before Jesus called us and saved us. And so it's not just now we bring it into the realm of us. It's not just a a stupid, dumb little sheep. It's us. And in our sin, we've been blinded and we've been lost and we're running by ourselves and we're running towards danger. And Jesus did not want that for us. And so he saved us. And the way he describes what happens when he saves him, he says this. He finds the sheep. He joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. Think about this for a second. You're a shepherd who had to run and dart after a sheep, who's was about to get into danger. When you pick up the sheep, what are you like? Right? You ever heard Joe Pesci in Home Alone? Like that, right? You would think that's how he's left, but no, the Bible says he joyfully picks up the sheep. He finds it. That's what Jesus, Jesus found you. He joyfully picks you up. The Bible says that he gets us out of the miry clay, and he establishes our feet on, on proper settings. He gets us out. And he comes home, and then he tells other people to rejoice for one of the sheep. Now, think about the story. The shepherd comes back, and you know, the other shepherds are probably looking at him saying, Man, that was rough. Glad you went. And the shepherd comes up with the sheep, and he goes, Dude, let's party. We got the sheep back. Woo! And they're like, All right. You know, a little over the top, right? I'll tell you this it's never, you're gonna find this out later from the prodigal son. It's never scary coming back to a father who loves to party. It never is. He's so happy to see us come back to him. He's so happy. Even though he's already saved you, maybe you're away from him, he's so happy to see you come back to him. He's so excited. He rejoices. And he says this, the angels in heaven rejoice over just one of those people coming to Jesus. And the word rejoice there is the word that we use normally when we describe in Scripture an angelic choir. So, not just one angel going, woo! We're talking like the shepherds on the field that sung. We're talking like a hallelujah chorus every time somebody comes to Jesus. See, the angels get it, and they don't even have access to the salvation that we have. What's robbed our joy? Second story. Or what woman has ten silver coins? Silver coins are valuable, okay? She loses one coin, does not, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now here's the thing. Silver's pricey, but what's more expensive, gold or silver? Gold, right? Okay, now nah, it'd be Bitcoin. You know what I'm saying? But this is, like, this, is like, this is like cash versus Bitcoin right now. This is just sloppy cash that nobody takes anymore, right? Silver has worth, but it's not like gold. But she had 10 silver coins, which is enough to pay the rent, buy food, and she lost one of them. So she has nine. Okay, so you're not going to get sushi this week. It's going to be mac and cheese. We're good, right? But still, what does she do? She looks all over the house. She moves things. She makes sure to find this one gold coin. Why? Why does a woman, why does somebody do this? Why does somebody do that? Why does somebody go after one coin? Because she views the coin as what? Valuable. Why does the sheep run after, why does the shepherd run after the sheep? Because he deems them Valuable. And so the same type of deal, I want you to see this, and so I love how Jesus brings it out, maybe for some of us who don't have like a farming background, and brings it into just flat-out economics, right? Jesus finds us valuable. Valuable enough to turn the world upside down to find us and to save us. And we're just some measly silver coin. We're not gold. We're not platinum. We're We're not diamonds. We're not... We're just a silver coin, and Jesus is like, you're the prettiest thing in the world. And here's even weirder. I, maybe, maybe you get it. Maybe if, you know, like if you had the, the best sheep at a fair, maybe you'd rejoice, and so bringing the sheep back may be one thing. But this silver coin brings it into perspective. It's not, it, it has worth, but it's not like, you know, the, the cat's meow. But he brings it, and his, she does the same thing. She finds the coin. So think about this. You find a coin. You have nine more, Okay. You find the coin and you call all your friends up. You send a, you, you send out a, a, an Eventbrite. You, you you know you put it on Facebook. You get together for a party. I found the coin. Woo! Everyone around you is thinking you're nuts, but your angels are like, yes, one more. You see, before we go into the story of the prodigal son, I want you to realize that if God's rejoicing over one, some, somebody getting saved and the angels are rejoicing over somebody getting saved, what the heck are we doing? Getting upset. Worrying about everything else. Instead of worrying about people coming to Jesus. I have a suspicion the reason why the Pharisees weren't worried about it is because they lost sight of the important tasks that they originally had. To lead people into a closer walk with God based on their intellect, their knowledge, and supposedly their spirituality. I have a feeling the same thing is true about the other shepherds. They were supposed to help the main shepherd, but they just let him do it. I have a feeling the same feeling about the friends of the lady with the coin. They, if they knew her well, they knew how much she valued those coins, and yet she had to call them. They weren't helping her search. You see, God rejoices in the fact that he sent his son to die to pay the price for my sin. It was in the perfect will of God for divinity to die, the divine to die, to pay the price for the things that I did yesterday, the things that I do today, and the things that I'll do tomorrow. God loves you so much that he sent his son to chase after you, to show you what he did for you. So my question to you is this. Is there joy in you seeing sinners saved? Is there joy in what God is trying to do in our midst? Are we caught up in religion like the Pharisees? Or do we really understand how Jesus Christ is calling people back to himself and he gives us the privilege of being a part of that? Are we ready to hear what God has for us when we look specifically at the prodigal son? So we go from the joy of sinners... The second point there that you see in your notes is that the king, there's kingdom joy. Every, the Angels, Jesus, the, the over repentant sinners. But the thing that we're going to start talking about next week is this, that there's celebration over the restoring of the lost. This is the one thing, to close up, that the other two parables leave out. The attitude, specifically, of those who saw those things happen. Okay? It doesn't mention... shepherds that were with the shepherd or if there was any other shepherds the second story doesn't mention the attitude of the friends when she calls them the prodigal son will show you how the son who left home how he reacted through all of it it will show you the reaction of the father and how he acted through all of this but it also shows you the way the older son who experienced all this how he received this information And so I pray as we get into the prodigal son starting next week that God will show us that if we have a leaning towards being a Pharisee or a leaning towards being apathetic or maybe there are some serious issues in our life right now that are causing us not to have the joy that we should have over people coming to Jesus, that God would cause us to repent. And cause us to be restored and renewed in order seeing people come to Jesus Christ.